2: I think i i would have assumed that a really strong majority of the court would have taken the kind of line that that kavanaugh did here you know kavanaugh follows the 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 line of, of net choice this is all editorial discretion and it's it's not only not censorship if a private company does it it's actually you know something like core core first amendment speech you know he's really placing a lot of emphasis on this public versus private divide as far as i can tell it's basically robertson cavanaugh and,
0: Kavanaugh, and I, I think that's that's it i'm benjamin wittes and this is the lawfare podcast february 27th 2024 the supreme court heard hours and hours of oral arguments today brought by a trade association called NetChoice against laws restricting content moderation in Florida and Texas. It's the big First Amendment case of the year and we sat through the whole bleeding oral argument. Joining me shortly thereafter in the virtual jungle studio were a very tired Quinta Jurassic, Alan Rosenstein and Kyle Langvart of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. We talked about where the justices seem to be leaning on this case, why they think the record is inadequate and underdeveloped, and why they're grumpy about it. We talked about whether we can predict where they seem to be headed. And we talked about why this case that doesn't involve Section 230 seems to involve Section 230. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 27th, The justices figure out that internet law is hard. I want to start with what these two laws are that required four hours of argument before uh, nine justices who uh, don't think they're the world's great experts on the internet – Today, Alan, we have one from Florida that we argued about first. We have one from Texas that we argued about second. For those for whom net choice is not a shorthand for the important First Amendment case of the year before the Supreme Court, what are the Florida and Texas laws and why does anybody care about them?
1: So these are two big, sprawling laws with a lot of moving parts. So I'm not going to try to describe each of them in total detail, but I'm just going to highlight what are the most important features uh, of them. So uh, the Texas law is in some senses the most straightforward. Basically, the main thing it does is it prohibits platforms from, and here the vocabulary kind of differs, but basically you can call it moderation. If you like what the platforms are doing, you can call it censorship. If you don't like what the platforms are doing, but basically it uh, doesn't allow the platforms to moderate based on quote unquote viewpoint. So in other words, if the platforms are taking down speech on one side of an issue, the platforms have to take down speech on another uh, side of an issue. Uh, That's in a nutshell what the Texas law does.
0: But hang on a second. Let me let me just clarify that. Because isn't all content moderation done on the basis of viewpoint? I mean, if I say, you know, you're not allowed to harass people, then uh when you engage in some activity that somebody is uh that is harassment in, in my view as the content moderator, couldn't you just say, well, you know, my my viewpoint is that you know, Kyle is a is a raging crazy person. So I'm telling him that over and over again. Stop so, censoring.
1: This gets to actually a bigger issue with both of these laws, which is that a lot of the key terms are either not defined or they're very vaguely defined. And and this is something I suspect Quinta will get into. These cases are being decided on an interesting procedural posture of facial challenge injunctions. So um, one of the problems is that we actually don't know what a lot of these like how a lot of these laws actually would work in practice?
0: So we should say it forbid it requires viewpoint neutrality in content moderation whatever that it, means exactly and i
1: do think there's a pretty good argument that in fact you know things like whether it's kicking people off for you know active harassment or take spam as another example i mean i think there's a, a way of saying well that's actually not based on viewpoint that's based on a certain kind of conduct but you're not wrong that these are the sorts of tricky issues that would have to be litigated in presumably state court um as the state court tried to figure out what it is that let's say the florida and Texas legislators meant
0: when they wrote these laws. Okay, so no viewpoint discrimination.
1: That's the Texas law kind of in a nutshell. Uh, the Florida law is both broader and narrower. It's narrower in that it allows for viewpoint discrimination, but ju- it just requires that content moderation practices be implemented consistently. Now, again, you're going to ask, well, what does consistently mean? And the answer is we have no idea uh, what it means, but at least in that sense, it's somewhat narrower than the Texas law. On the other hand, it's broader, or one might say more impactful than the Texas law, because for two specific categories of users and content, so in particular, politicians and political candidates and speech related to them, that's kind of uh, one category, and the other category is journalists and journalistic enterprises, with respect to those categories, basically no content moderation is allowed whatsoever, whether or not it's consistent or viewpoint neutral or or whatnot. So those are the the the, the kind of marquee features of the laws. Each law also has individualized uh, explanation requirements. So you know if you are censored or moderated or banned or whatever. The platform has to explain to you why exactly they did that, which is a not inconsiderable requirement given the volume at which moderation happens. Um, And then the laws also differ in their um, implementation and enforcement. Um, The Texas law allows for injunctions brought by uh, the the AG in Texas. The Florida law actually uh, allows for money damages uh, for violations, which can add up. Um, But I think it's going to most helpful to just to focus on the, the two marquee features, which again in Texas is viewpoint neutrality. And in Florida is consistency plus some special protections for politicians and journalists.
3: So I I do want to make sure that we touch at least briefly on what was not at issue here, which is uh, both the Texas and Florida law included uh, sort of broad, high level transparency requirements for platforms that uh, required them to put out sort of big reports about their content moderation practices um, and and rules and the court uh, did not take that up. Here, um, At the urging of the Solicitor General, it set it apart. Um, Those were upheld in in both the Fifth and the Eleventh Circuit. Um, Netchoice had been arguing that those were unconstitutional as well under the First Amendment. And there's been a lot of really good work done by, among other folks, uh, Jamil Jaffer um, and his his colleagues at the Knight Institute at Columbia, about how if the court had ruled that that was barred by the First Amendment, that could be a real problem in terms of uh, not only potential tech regulation but also you know researcher access to data right so that is not on the table here it's just these sort of smaller individual requirements um but i do think that it's it's worth noting you know if you take these first amendment arguments to the end of the road you can end up really limiting not only you know bad faith regulation but the most limited of good faith regulation in terms of you know Uh, laws that would allow or require researchers to have some level of access to platform data, which are, I would argue, more important than ever in a period in which platforms are increasingly closing themselves off.
0: All right. So the next question, just to set up the conversation, Quinta, is how the heck did we get here? So there was a lot of complaints uh, from the justices uh, across ideological divides that the record was not especially well-developed and that they kind of didn't know what they were talking about here. And there were kind of pointed comments by some of the advocates blaming each other for the underdeveloped state of the record or the, the misdeveloped state of the record. What is the procedural posture of this case and why are we talking about it now with an underdeveloped record?
3: Yes, the the justices seemed much more interested in the procedural posture than, than I think we had expected, certainly than, than I expected. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, at one point, one of the advocates said, um, I believe it's it's not my fault um, or something along those lines in, in explaining. Always a bad
1: thing to have to say at the Supreme Court.
3: <laughs> yes. Um, so... The the story here, I think, has a lot to do with uh, NetChoice, which is the trade group that has been challenging these laws. Um, so it, it represents a, a number of the really big heavy hitters here, including Meta, Google. I'm not sure if X is in there or not, to be completely honest, um, but it's sort of, you know, the big social media platforms, the platforms you think of when you think social media and they have really made a name for themselves over the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years, in really sort of always being the first group out of the gate when there is a law that seeks to regulate platforms in some way, shape or form, whether um, these laws having to do with content moderation from Texas and Florida, or You know, laws that limit um, children or seek to limit children's access to certain services, and in other states, um, they are always there on day one or at least day two um, with a a big press release and a big splashy lawsuit.
0: I mean, is it fair to say for uh, the naive listener who that when you hear the name net choice in any kind of litigation, you should just your working assumption should be. This is big tech when it doesn't want to put the individual companies' names on it. So it's like if whatever YouTube and Facebook and uh, Twitter and Etsy have in common, their interests in common, NetChoice's job is to be kind of first out of the gate representing that so that none of the individual companies have to take individual responsibility for the litigation. Is that a fair or if ungenerous way to put it?
3: I think it's ungenerous. It might be fair. I'm actually looking at their members now. It does include X for the record. It also includes TikTok, Amazon, but also some smaller players. So Etsy, for example. Which is will become important for, for reasons that we can discuss. Hotels.com orbits. Um, but yes, it's, it's sort of the consolidated voice of tech companies, um, such as they are. And so the reason that this sort of first out of the gate approach is important for uh, what we're about to describe in terms of oral arguments is that it means that NetChoice is challenging these laws before they're actually implemented. Um, and that means that I believe in, in all the cases they've brought, certainly these two cases, the Texas and Florida cases, their challenges to the laws are facial um, as opposed to an as-applied challenge, meaning that, you know, they're essentially saying this is Unconstitutional in all circumstances. Um, And that means that we're litigating on the basis of a record that isn't particularly developed, um, which is particularly sort of naughty in this instance, because the laws are actually so broad to begin with. There's a lot of confusion about, for example, is Etsy even covered by the the Florida law? Um, And so that that led to a lot of frustration among the justices about how little information they had um, in terms of how these these laws might be implemented, what might be covered. Um, It also led to a lot of confusion about who uh, had the burden of arguing what So uh, Paul Clement, who's arguing for net choice in both cases, was arguing that uh, Florida and Texas had the burden to show that these laws had what's called a a term of art, a plainly legitimate sweep. Um, There's another argument about whether or not he had to, they had to meet an even higher standard. There's a lot of going back and forth here. And this was a bit surprising because it hadn't really shown up in the briefing. Um, The briefing as all of the advocates uh, hastened to, to point out again and again, had really focused on the question of social media companies specifically. Um, and at one point, Solicitor General Elizabeth Preligar essentially said, you know, it's it's a little unusual <laughs> uh, to, to want to bring in these issues that weren't really before the appeals court. But, you know, here we are. And if you want to rule on that basis, you can do so. All of which meant that, you know, I think there are a lot of genuine serious constitutional issues on the merits uh, with these laws that I personally would really like to have some clarity on, but that we spent a lot of time going around and around in circles on the difference between facial versus as applied challenges.
0: Well... Quinta has just revealed herself as not a true Supreme Court nerd because a true Supreme Court nerd would be completely energized by diverting the entire case onto facial versus as-applied challenges. Yeah, that's not me. Okay, Kyle, with all of that as a 12-minute and 50-second prelude, what do you make of the arguments today and how would you characterize what happened in them uh, all four hours of them and then when Kyle's done Alan and Quinta just pick it up and offer uh, your own thoughts
2: yeah well so I mean I I was also kind of struck by how much how much time the court wound up dealing with uh, the, the difficulty that's involved with a, a facial challenge here and, and all the complexity of all these different platforms but really it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense and I, I think the reason that the court wound up in this in this position is that both sides have really litigated this thing in terms of absolutes at the conceptual level? So Paul Clement said at multiple points, if a, a private entity controls third-party content, then it's called editorial discretion. If a public entity does it, it's called uh, it's called censorship. The Florida SG kind of insisted on on framing. Florida's content moderation law as a law that just regulated conduct, as a law that didn't really regulate speech. Well, if if the whole thing has been litigated in, in these types of absolutes, and if one of those absolute perspectives is, is correct, then um, either the law is completely okay in all applications, whether you're talking about Facebook, whether you're talking about Etsy, whether you're talking about Uber, or it's bad in all applications, even if you're talking about you know, Facebook, even if you're talking about, about YouTube. And I don't think at, at the end of the day, you know, the, the idea that everybody on who owns an internet platform is the equivalent of a newspaper editor is, is all that satisfying. And it's also not all that satisfying to say that all that's going on here is, is pure conduct. When the court was trying to find some kind of way out of the options that had been presented to it, I, I think it was largely dealing with, you know, the the inadequacy of those two alternatives.
1: Yeah, I, I think Kyle really kind of hit hit the nail on the head with his description of many justices' frustrations with these kind of absolutes. My my favorite part came i think af- at hour three though by that point i don't know time had lost all meaning where justice alito with kind of trademark alito frustration uh but this time i think extremely well deserved said look and i remember who he was talking to he said look i'm just not sure i buy any of these analogies clearly facebook is not like a newspaper clearly it's not like a you know a uh, 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 Western Union for a, a parade, right? Like none of these analogies work perfectly. And I was just so heartened to hear that. I think shortly after he he then asked the advocate how, how much YouTube would weigh as if a YouTube. Newspaper. If
3: YouTube were a newspaper, <laughs> yeah, how much yeah. would it weigh? Which I, I've spent a little bit thinking about, and I think what it reminds me of is the Noam Chomsky uh, colorless green ideas sleep <laughs> like, furiously. this idea, the sentence that is grammatically correct, but though, means though I, I, will,
1: I will say uh, it was only the second weirdest uh, moment in the uh, oral argument after Sir. This is a Wendy's reference by the uh, Solicitor General of Texas. A particularly weird moment, but but I, I think that's a really important point. You know, I will say, after listening to the fairly rough time, I thought that the I think SG for for Florida had in the first part of the argument, I thought, Oh, man, this is this is going to be like the I don't know, Colorado case, right? Like you just walk in with all your theories and the courts just going to be a buzzsaw. But then it became very, very clear that I don't think there's a majority that's, you know, going to be particularly eager to sort of swashbucklingly rule in front of in, in favor of the platforms. I think that you know uh, uh, the the facial versus as applied issue is going to be a huge sticking point. Um, now, how the court's going to unwind that is is, is not clear. But you know, I, I suspect that while I don't think that the the states are going to preserve both of their laws in their entirety, and I suspect that you know some of the marquee provisions might either get struck down or when if the court kind of remands this for further development, there's going to be a pretty strong. Gloss on what that should look like, and I suspect that, for example, things like you know the Texas viewpoint neutrality on the newsfeed thing—that's probably not going to survive. I think enough of it will survive, and I think in particular, the, you know, there's enough justices. You know, off the top of my head, kind of counting noses, I'm thinking Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Barrett, and Jackson. Uh, maybe a couple of more. Probably not Roberts and Kavanaugh. They're they're kind of the most kind of on the net choice side. But I I think there's going to be actually. Enough recognition by the court that just unthinkingly applying the super strong first amendment protections in cases like Tornillo, which is the newspaper case, or Hurley, which is the, the parade case, uh, to you know the the biggest companies in the world, the, the holders of the public square, I do think that's going to work. And, and that, to me, I think is a that would be a dramatic. A dramatic uh, a holding. I mean, it would be a full employment program for Kyle and me, who who can af- inexhaustibly <laughs> write about this stuff for a living. Um, but I think that's pretty pretty surprising, and and to the court's credit, actually.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a, a few years ago, I think I I would have assumed that a really strong majority of the court would have taken the kind of line that that Kavanaugh did here. You know, Kavanaugh follows the the, the line of, of net choice. This is all editorial. Discretion, and it's it's not only not censorship if a private company does it, it's actually you know something like core core First Amendment speech. You know he's really placing a lot of emphasis on this public versus private divide. As far as I can tell, it's basically Roberts and Kavanaugh. And I I think that's that's it. I mean you you were adding up uh, Thomas Alito Gorsuch Barrett Jackson. But I think Kagan and Sotomayor were also interested in in this facial versus as applied issue, and I think once you're kind of talking about uh, facial versus as applied, you're 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 beginning to kind of haggle over who's going to qualify as an editor or a speaker and who isn't.
3: Yeah, and I think Justice Gorsuch made this really clear at one point. I we don't have a transcript yet, so I'm just looking at my notes, but. I believe he, he uh, in a question to Solicitor General Prelegar essentially said, look, you say in your brief that you know you don't completely agree on net choice, that you think net choice errs in some ways in making such a strong First Amendment claim. If you think net choice errs, if we agree with you, it's hard to deal with that in a facial challenge, um, which is essentially saying explicitly, we really want to figure out some middle path here. And because this is framed as a facial challenge, it's actually – incredibly uh, difficult to to do so. I, I was also really struck by how game the justices seem to try to figure out a middle path. I mean, there was a, a question from Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, where I think she explicitly said, you know, look, these platforms are are private entities, but they're also sort of a de facto public, you know, public forum is a specific term of art here, but they're, they're, they're a public square. Um, doesn't that mean that there should be you know some kind of different way of of thinking about this? And what the argument actually reminded me of more than anything was oral arguments in Gonzalez versus Google, which had to do with uh, an attempt to hold Google liable for terrorist content. By pointing, trying to kind of carve a hole through Section 230 by pointing to algorithmic amplification, and during oral arguments in that case, the justices seemed really conscious of just how difficult and thorny an issue this was that they had kind of thrust themselves into, and they ended up essentially kicking the can down the road and not addressing that that case. And here, there's a bit of a similar dynamic here in that you know they they seem to have you know taken these cases. There there was a circuit split. Uh, taken these cases and then looked at them and said, "Ooh, this is really hard. I don't know if we want to do this right now." Uh, but unlike in Gonzales, where there was somewhat of a record, um, here it's really just all at a very, very high level, which which makes it tough to to weigh in. And they seem to be, have kind of seized on this this issue of the facial challenge as kind of a, a way to to navigate through that. And I mean, there's there's something to that. But I I will say I also found it pretty frustrating at points because it meant that there was a lot of sort of going around in circles about, you know, what is the meaning of censorship? Um, There were a lot of bizarre little detours about Section 230, which there may be a preemption issue here with the Texas and Florida laws in 230 that wasn't really briefed. A lot of the interpretations of two thirty were just depended on sort of really shoddy history, which Paul Clement was only too eager <laughs> to to correct and I think that just kind of points to how this case was at such a high altitude that the justices were just kind of talking about you know the internet and all of the things that that is is associated with and one one more thing I'll say before I pass it over to Alan, I find it frustrating in part because you know. There is a circuit split here. There's the the Eleventh Circuit and the Fifth Circuit disagreed about certain aspects. Um, and at a certain point, if you're the Supreme Court, you can't just sit there and take these cases and say, ooh that that's a, that's a toughie. I don't know if we want to deal with this one. As with Gonzalez, you know, at a certain point, it starts to look like a pattern. They are going to have to weigh in on this issue. It's not going to go away. It's only going to get more confusing from here as First Amendment doctrine is, you know, increasingly in flux and there's more and more interest in platform regulations. And so they seem to want to kick the can down the road again. And I just don't know how well that's going to serve them as a strategy.
1: So I, I want I want to pull on two things that Quinta said. First is is this point about how we we seem to be getting a redux of the Gonzalez argument, right? Where this is really hard. We don't want to deal with it. I mean, I I find this area really fascinating uh, and I'm glad I study it. I, I am a bit surprised that not only does the court seem to find this area fascinating, but this appears to be like the hardest set of jurisprudential issues the court's been dealing with, right? Like a few weeks ago, we heard a case about the future of democracy and that seemed orders of magnitude simpler to whether or not a state can pass a law, Right. On content moderation. Um, and I, I think part of it is just, I, 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 I guess I'm, I'm gratified that it's not only my head that hurts when I think about this. Apparently it's the Supreme Court head that, that hurts, uh, as well. The other thing I wanted to uh, mention is, is, you know, Quinta mentioned the, this point that Justice Jackson made. And I, I think Justice Jackson actually had the kind of best general contributions to these, to this argument because Justice Jackson was the only one that really was focusing on the actual kind of brass tacks of why we have these doctrines about editorial control and why that's protected the First Amendment and not and and that is uh, not because we care particularly about the First Amendment interests of these platforms, right? It's the platforms, of course, our companies. They don't really have First Amendment interest, and even if we're using it as a shorthand for the interests of the people that run them. I mean, even I think people like. Uh, Kavanaugh or Roberts, who are most sympathetic to net choice, it's not like they really care about preserving Mark Zuckerberg, right, or Elon Musk, or, you know, what Satya Nadella's uh, First Amendment rights are. It's because everyone is using these First Amendment rights as a shorthand for what really matters, which is the rights of users, listeners, society, the democratic process, and so on. What was frustrating is how little time was spent actually trying to connect the doctrine right? And the various buzzwords and formulations and magic talismans, right? It's kind of a standard issue in, in constitutional, especially doctrinal, formless constitutional law with those underlying issues. And so- You know, in in a sense, to me, the argument kind of only really got started after two hours of going around and around in circles, realizing that just citing to what someone said in Tornillo on the one hand or what someone said in Rumsfeld versus Fair on the the other side is not helpful because nothing turns, actually, or nothing non tautologically or non-question-beggingly turns on whether or not you decide that content moderation is on the one hand as netchoice argues an exercise in editorial discretion or as the states argue on the other side censorious conduct like non-editorial censorious conduct right and so to me i kind of wish and i sort of understand why the advocates for the states in particular florida didn't just accept that there was a first amendment interest here and then just argue that the benefits of government regulation outweighed the cost because you know first amendment scrutiny is is hard but that meant that like a lot of this argument was kind of preparatory to actually talking about what mattered. And so my hope is whatever the Supreme Court does, whether it remands the lower courts, you know whether this decision is mostly about facial versus as applied stuff and we're just stuck here three years from now, it's going to at least provide a little bit more guidance to the lower courts on how to not just, you know, play with various formulations, but actually decide the substantive question which is for the sake of american democracy and american speech like how how important is it that you know we give these companies total leeway versus you know give have the government whatever the risks of that have some role in deciding what content moderation is and i just i really wish i'd seen more of that i mean alito and jackson came closest to dr- to driving in but even they it was a lot of glancing blows on the issue
2: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. I want to say a few words in defense of kicking cans down roads which uh, is something that Alex Bickel used to call the passive virtues. And um, we used to think was something connected to judicial restraint. Did
1: you say used to because because he died and he's no longer
0: calling it? Well, he wrote a book with that was one of the chapter titles, you know, and it was about the Supreme Court's mechanisms of not deciding issues just because the political system wants them to. And yes, he is dead. Look, uh, we don't like it when the Supreme Court makes big grand decisions. Then we have, you know, situations like, you know, Dobbs and um, and we have situations like the disputes over the Voting Rights Act. Um, there are good reasons for the Supreme Court to let political processes play out and not be quick to jump in and interfere with things. And one of the best reasons... Is because the record is undeveloped and it's actually not good enough to make an informed decision about what you're doing. So I have a lot of sympathy with uh, justices who looked at this and said, wait a minute, I can't actually figure out what I'm deciding. And, uh, uh, state of Florida and state of Texas and Paul Clement, uh, you guys are trying to make something absolute here that I don't want to accept as absolute. So I want a better record before I decide this like quite large question. And so, Kyle, I wanted to ask you and get us started here, assuming there are five votes for the idea that we are not going either or on this based on this record. What does a decision look like? Like, what <laughs> what does the court do that like says that kicks the can down the road and says, we're not deciding this yet. We want a better record. Ultimately though, you have to decide, does this law in Florida, does this law in Texas go into effect? Do you lift the stay or not? So my question is like, what does an opinion, a kicking the can down the road opinion actually say?
2: Well, I mean, it's, sort of hard hard for me to say but it it seemed like what at least i i believe kagan and maybe barrett were asking about was whether you could have a decision that upheld the preliminary injunction just with respect to a few of these core platforms while somehow specifying that that it didn't apply beyond beyond that scope but it i mean it really is kind of a kind of a novel thing and I'm not sure exactly what it what it would look like. You know, you you talk about kicking the can uh down the road. I think in a in a way just by forcing the parties and in the, the court below to reframe the question and develop a better a, be, a better record, you know, that's a kind of can kicking that actually does make some law. I mean, there's a, there, there's a little bit of clarity that that comes with that kind of decision.
3: In this respect, I think Priligar was really trying to sort of gently show the justices a, a way to, to handle this. Um, and as always, she is just like astonishingly good and was sort of, I think, arguing, you know, look, you can, there are a number of ways that you could do this, um, but it is an option for you to say... We're going to rule on the aspect that has been fully briefed on the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of these laws as they apply to social media platforms specifically, which was how the arguments were fashioned in the lower courts and then we're going to kick the can on this question of how they apply more broadly and and what that might look like and and that way you know you can kind of split the baby, get the best of both worlds, whatever comparison you you want to use. And I will say, I think that certainly to me seemed convincing, maybe that's just because she's a very compelling advocate, <laughs> but it does seem to address aspects of these laws that strike me as very obviously out of bounds first amendment wise well leaving the door open for you know applying them a different context or other uh forms of of regulation, um which i to me at least seemed to be a little bit what. The justices were nervous about, and what prelegar specifically was arguing is that you know we can there there is a way to rule here that doesn't take such a strong view of the First Amendment that makes regulation of tech companies completely impossible.
1: Yeah, the only thing that I will add, and this is kind of responsive to, to Ben's defense of, of can kicking, is I, in general I'm I'm with you, and and you know I think the thing that Kyle and I have been writing about is the hope that the court does, in a sense, kick the can down the road by ruling really narrowly. The, the problem. And here I have some sympathy towards NetChoice. These laws are so broad, they're so vague, and they would have such a titanic impact on social media platforms that I, what I don't think a state should be able to do is write a super broad law and then say, well, it's so broad, it's so vague, we don't actually know what it says, so no one sue us, we'll just implement it over several years, who the hell knows what will happen, and then once we've destroyed your platform, you can sue. I think that's the problem. And I think that's why in First Amendment doctrine, you litigants challenging state actions on First Amendment grounds tend to get they, they get more bites or earlier bites, um, more permissive biting. <laughs> uh uh yeah, I know that's a little weird. Uh they, they they get to do things that other litigants won't because courts are very sensitive to the the harms that broadly and vaguely worded a potential infringements on the First Amendment can create. Yeah, and
2: I'll just add. I mean, this this is an area where it would have been, uh, I think, helpful if there had been more discussion of the downstream impacts on on users. You know, everybody disagrees about how, in the abstract, you should characterize a, a platform as a speaker or a regulator or a common carrier or an editor, whatever it is. But everybody agrees that these. Users on the platforms are, are engaging in, in speech, and whatever the court does here is going to have some some effect on on structuring those users' own speech speech practices. You know, th- there were a couple of a couple of moments where I thought counsel actually tried to draw out a, li- a little bit of this, and and the court didn't didn't follow up so much. One was Clement during the arguments about, about the Florida law, said, you know, if, if we have to be consistent on, on account of viewpoint, then the most cost-effective thing for us to do is going to be to just remove whole whole debates. You know, if we have to be viewpoint neutral, but we're allowed to be content-based in our discrimination, well, we'll just discriminate on the basis of, of subject matter. That's a lot easier than leaving up all the horrible
1: speech. Yeah. The, the platform will only contain posts about Italian bicycles, which I yeah, thought was yeah. extremely yeah. bizarre. Yeah. I don't, maybe we're getting a, a, a view into a Paul Clement's hobby world. And yeah. so, I'm, I'd love, I'd love to hear more from him about Italian bicycles.
2: I mean, I thought it was a, it was a delightful it, kind of humanizing uh, moment, <laughs> moment there, but um, that and the Wendy's thing, but the, uh, <laughs> the Texas the Texas SG also raised this point about just taking down more speech as a way to deal with the law. So uh Kavanaugh asked, but what what do you do with the terrorist speech? And the Texas Solicitor General said, Well, this is this is easy. You know, if you don't want pro Al Qaeda speech, just take down the pro Al Qaeda speech and the anti Al Qaeda speech. Just say we don't want any discussion of, of Al Qaeda. You know, I was that's a I, I, that doesn't seem like a great a great outcome in in First Amendment terms to me, and and I, I think it would have been maybe, maybe real clarifying.
0: windfall for Al Qaeda actually.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I would have liked to see the court explore more of those kind of implementation questions. You know, how how does this actually work in practice?
3: Yeah, I would I would second that just just briefly. Um, I mean, I think that I was really struck by. The casualness with which counsel for for Texas kind of engaged with those hypotheticals and and this has appeared I think throughout the litigation of this case, but there was a point where uh he he said in response to that same question for Kavanaugh, you know, oh well, we don't even have to think about that because of course you know that's illegal, and so that would be it would be fine to remove that under our law anyway and then Kavanaugh pointed out like what are you talking about, <laughs> right? There's a lot of discussion about Al-Qaeda that is potentially concerning and that uh, as a platform you might want to remove that is not illegal in the slightest. And so the there was a level of like not understanding that actually some of these decisions are like really important and, and things that you should want to be removed um, on the part of, of Texas, I think less so for Florida, but really in Texas that I found... Kind of disturbing, to be honest.
1: That was wild, and, and is an interesting example. I think also of that the the justices are getting a lot savvier. Um, I think that's something actually worth pointing out. I don't know if it's a generational thing. I don't think it was. I mean, I think the older justices were, you know, just as, uh kind of understood this just as much as the younger justices did. But you know, I, I think we're a, a very long. Thankfully, we're, we're many many years away from. You know how do beepers work? What do you mean? The signal goes to China first, right? Um, Which I think just generally bodes bodes well uh, for um, uh, future uh, litigation over over new technology.
0: All right, so let's talk about uh, one of the things that we were, I recall, I was very struck by. I know Quinto was in the Gonzalez argument was how apolitical it seemed and how you really couldn't tell what the political orientation of any justice was by their questions. This one uh, seemed a little bit less untouched by political valence, but at the same time uh, was not especially political. It was not like the conservative judges were lined up behind Texas and Florida and the liberal judges were lined up for net choice. In fact, the ju- justices who seemed most behind net choice were uh, both Republican appointees, uh, Justice Kavanaugh and, and Chief Justice Roberts. So, uh, Quinta, get us started on this. What did you make of the political valence of the argument to the extent you identify one?
3: Yeah, I think I broadly would agree with that framing. I think that it came through most clearly in the questions from uh, Justices Thomas Alito and to some extent, Justice Gorsuch as well, who were very clearly, in the case of Thomas and Alito, sympathetic to and concerned about claims of "Quote unquote censorship of conservative speech by platforms, which is what uh, led Texas and Florida to to pass these laws, um, in the first place." I think Justice Alito at one point launched into a hypothetical about you know the speech environment on college campuses, which I, I think shows a little bit where he's he's coming from. There's also just specifically the the language um, that they're using as language that is sort of used on the right. So, you know, referring to moderation as as censorship, um, Thomas seems skeptical of the idea that there could be any good faith uh, content moderation at all. I also think that you you saw that, um, I can't quite recall if Justice Alito touched on this, but Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch um, in the questions that they asked about uh, Section 230 there's one really bewildering question from Justice Gorsuch, uh, who asked, I think this is a direct quote: "Isn't Section 230 predicated on the idea that platforms are common carriers, um, which is sort of so inside out and backwards it, that it I, is I can't even. <laughs> yeah, listener, it's really it not. not. And 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 Paul Clement, I think, did a you know gave a very cogent, quick overview of why that is not the case. Um, but those those specific arguments about the nature of Section 230 are something that has really come into fashion on the political right um, in recent years and are not something that you see so much among people who are more to the center and more to the left. And so I felt that that, that was really the the point where it became clear to me uh, what, what law review articles they were reading, uh, so to speak. I think I... I saw less of that from the liberals, although it's possible that I missed something. There was a a Justice Kagan, um, who's certainly not partisan by any means, made some comment about platforms wanting to ban anti-vaxxers and insurrectionists, which, uh, given the 14th Amendment arguments, did make me smile a little bit. But I think that really the sort of party affiliation came through more on the right there. Is that fair, Kyle and
2: Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right,
0: Alan. What did you think? Did you detect a strong political valence at any point here? I, I didn't.
1: I, I mean, sure, but no different than the Gonzalez and Tomna arguments. I, it's just, in a sense, it's. I mean, and we'll get into this because we should talk about the weird Section Two Thirty stuff that that came in. But in a sense, it's the same argument. Right, it's the same issue, which is how should we treat platforms given that they are private. But that they sort of run the, pro- the the public square, and so obviously the the doctrines different, but the sympathies to the platforms um, among the justices, I think, fall down in pretty predictable ways across these two sets of cases. And you know, I think the most notable thing is is just to divide among the conservatives. So you have a what you might call the the the, the big business conservatives. Right, you know people like Chief Justice and and Kavanaugh, right? Who who are are not particular culture warriors. And again, I, I don't mean any of these terms pejoratively; just kind of shorthands. But they're not they're not big culture warriors. They are big believers in sort of traditional, good old corporate America, and generally are skeptical of state power. You know, to to the point where Justice Kavanaugh kept trying to define censorship as kind of. Uh, by by stipulation, only something a government can do, which I don't think was super convincing, but I get where he's coming from. And then the more, I mean, again, I I don't know how else to describe it, um, even though there's some kind of dismissive overtones, the more culture warrior side of the conservatives, right? Specifically people like Alito and and Thomas. Um, You know, Again, exactly where Gorsuch and, and Barrett fit in is a little less clear. Maybe Gorsuch is more with Alito and Thomas and Barrett is like a kind of a floating free agent here. And then, on the liberals, I don't think you have so much a split among the liberals as each liberal has within them conflicting they they all they all contain multitudes, right? on on the one hand, these I think these are all good First Amendment liberals in that they're they're all for more speech. And so when someone raises a, you know, hey, the government is telling me what to do challenge, they are uh, I think, reflexively predisposed to think that there's something there. But these are also, Liberals, in the sense of disliking First Amendment Lochnerism or the application of First Amendment to big corporations, are, are very nervous about the use of the First Amendment to go after various civil rights and anti discrimination laws, as in we saw in 303 Creative, uh, either last term or the term before. So, you know, I think there's a lot of sur- soul searching with, within them. So, again, it's not that I wouldn't say that there isn't kind of political valence to these issues. There definitely is. But again, it's it's not the sort of Six three affirmative action or six three abortion rights uh, that we've seen, which, uh, like as a as a law professor, is what in part makes this so much fun because this stuff is extremely not pre baked until it gets before the Supreme Court, uh, which is you know which is nice.
2: I mean, I think what makes the kind of ideological aspect of this sort of unpredictable is if you were to really kind of back up, if you were to go back to say like twenty ten or something like this, and somebody somebody told you okay in, in the future there there may be these these laws that try to provide a right of access to privately owned social media platforms or private search platforms i would think you would assume that those laws would be coming from from democrats rather than rather than republicans you know it, i mean it feels like a much more natural issue for the left and at least i mean it, if you go back to, to something like like twenty ten, the Roberts Kavanaugh position would seem like uh the, the natural position for the right. You know, you say basically if you're the property owner, you own the infrastructure, then you have this kind of constitutional deregulatory right. And what's really scrambled that is just the kind of like culture war politics basically of the Trump years and and beyond. Uh so you know the the awkwardness
1: is I think just kind of inherent to this to this issue. Well, and what Kyle's describing is net neutrality. And there was yeah. a great moment where uh, I think this was was Proligar and, and maybe Kavanaugh, and they're kind of going back and forth, right, about, but wait a second, you know, uh, uh, Solicitor General, you know, the government is constantly trying to defend net neutrality. Why are you defending net neutrality, but but you know telling us that we should strike down at least some of the parts of the Florida and Texas laws? And, and her answer was uh, because they're different, and and <laughs> obviously she said more than that. I don't think it was super convincing what what she said, but it it does show how th- these things get flipped extremely extremely oddly, uh, and I think it, it just reflects ultimately that you know this is the platform platforms world we all live in it, which is why the left and the right can both get annoyed with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And I think that, I mean, that also, uh, that little exchange with Prelegar was referencing Kavanaugh, somewhat famously, I guess, uh, dissented from the D.C. circuits ruling, upholding net neutrality back when when he was on that court. So there's a little kind of time capsule element there.
0: One more subject before we wrap. This is not a case about Section 230. And yet you couldn't go 20 minutes in this oral argument without some, some justice raising a question of Section 230. Alan, how does 230 keep sticking its ugly nose into places where it doesn't belong? And what can we do to get it to shut up?
1: Yeah, so I, I think section 30 might might it just might be like a zombie law. You you cannot kill it like it it's it's like an invasive weed. It just just goes everywhere. So look, I, there is the an kudzu actual, of,
0: of <laughs> exactly, American uh, exactly. internet law.
1: That's a good law review title, the kudzu of Section Two Hundred and Thirty. So look, there there is a there is like a substantive issue here where the part of Section Two Hundred and Thirty that no one ever talks about, which is not C One but C Two, um, which prohibits civil liability for certain kinds of content moderation decisions, that might actually substantively apply, right? If Section Two Hundred and Thirty doesn't allow platforms to be held civilly liable for certain uh, acts of moderation or censorship, then to the extent that these state laws try to hold companies liable for that, then they are verboten, right? So that's a Section 230 issue. But that, interestingly, is not the Section 230 issue that the justices, in particular the conservative justices, wanted to talk about. They seem, in an almost gotcha-like way, to try to get Paul Clement and NetChoice to admit simultaneously that well, for purposes of Section 230 litigation, the platforms are constantly claiming that they're just passive conduits and therefore they shouldn't be considered publishers. I'm I, I love. i you know, I'm glad we're recording the video because the the amount of head shaking right now. <laughs> Kyle and I are really, both shaking a, our heads and rolling uh, our eyes. So, so for, trying to convince them that for Section 230 purposes, the platforms are saying, hey, we're just neutral conduits and therefore not publishers and therefore not liable. But the moment the First Amendment issue comes up, we're suddenly like intimately connected with the speech and therefore our First Amendment rights.
0: And just to be clear, the reason that that is, Not a meritorious argument is that the precise purpose of Section 230 and, in fact, the language of it was you can't treat them as publishers, even if they are, uh, in some sense, functioning as publishers in certain instances. A lot of people pretending to be confused about this, I think. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The, the, the,
1: the, the The whole point is, right? There's a constitutional question of What the First Amendment does. And then there's a statutory interpretation question of what Congress did to certain common law liabilities. And at some point, Paul Clement, who I have to say was snippier with the justices throughout than I thought was allowed, I think earned his snippiness when he was like, I mean, they're just different things, guys. So I I don't know exactly what game Thomas and Alito are playing, but it's it's annoying. It's an annoying game.
3: Yeah, and one one more point on that which I think Clement uh made snippily was that, you know, even if you want to talk about this in terms of first amendment issues, there we have first amendment law. He used the example of a, you know, a collected anthology, right? If I'm editing an anthology of writings, there's the First Amendment interest of the people who have written the articles in my anthology. And then I also have a First Amendment interest as the editor. And both of those things are in play here. Those are both recognized in First Amendment jurisprudence. And that's not controversial at all. So the idea that there could sort of the First Amendment could potentially be operating on two levels here in addition to section 230 should not be hard. Um, and yet as, as you say, it was sort of framed as this like, haha, you didn't see that coming, did you? All
0: right. Speaking of things we didn't see coming, let's do predictions. Kyle, you get as long as you need to give as precise a prediction about what these nine ciphers are going to do with this underdeveloped record. Uh, as they say in Congress, take such time as the gentleman may require.
2: So, it's probably a good idea to be like extremely precise here, right? About my, about my,
0: my prediction. I think you want to be so precise that you bore the hell out of people, so there's no chance they remember your the prediction. The
1: map should be exactly as detailed as the
0: territory. Because I, I just I just want to assure everybody that nobody's getting this prediction right. So I
2: want to be I want to be boring and wrong. Is is what I'm going for. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think I think they'll just they'll just kick it down the road. I mean, I I, I mean, it, I guess it's still hard for me to imagine these laws actually going into effect with respect to the the social platforms. I mean, I, I think the the consequences are just really really unpalatable, uh, and so you know somehow I guess I I would imagine a majority of the court will try to prevent that from uh, from taking place but but beyond that i i don't know quinta
0: your highly detailed prediction <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah i mean look we, at one point it became clear that not only do the platforms not know if the Texas law forbids them from picking up stakes and moving out of Texas, Texas doesn't even really know if the Texas <laughs> yeah. law forbids them from moving out of Texas. Was so, a, so,
1: it was amazing. Just I just, just to say, it was amazing how much the solicitor generals for both Texas and Florida had absolutely no idea how either of their laws would work. That was remarkable. The records have right, not which developed. Is the,
3: I mean... <laughs> So which which just points to, you know, just how disruptive these laws will be if they do go into effect. So and, and the justices seemed aware of that. I don't think there were I mean, maybe you could count Thomas and Alito as votes to maybe Gorsuch to to go back, you know, put these laws into effect as they um, as this is hashed out. But I, I doubt it. Um, so, yeah, it'll they'll be put they'll be kept on hold in some way. Maybe they'll take the out that Priliger was suggesting and and rule on the laws as as they apply to social media platforms and vacate and remand the rest. I I truly, I truly don't know. I just think they they desperately don't want to be holding the hot potato.
0: Alan, your highly detailed and specific (laughs) prediction. I'm going to make... A highly detailed and specific okay. prediction. So no, I'm
1: looking I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, the the problem is I came into this argument thinking this was gonna be a really thorny First Amendment issue, and then it was a thorny First Amendment issue, and then an extremely thorny like federal courts jurisprudence issue and remedies issue. And so like I, I wish we had like Steve Laddick here so he could tell us like what are the 17 things the Supreme Court can do when like crafting the actual judgment? Because that to me is what's so complicated here. At the end of the day, right. Um, and I, I think I'm in agreement with Kyle and Quinta. I just think it's extremely unlikely that the court will allow some of the marquee provisions to go in, right? I mean, if you know, if if the answer is, well, we'll just take down everything having to do with Al-Qaeda, like there's no universe, I think, in which the Supreme Court will allow that. The question is, how do they express that in a way that is limited but still useful? I mean, do they say we're keeping everything on hold? But here are some thoughts for lower courts to consider. Here's our sense of what the doctrine is. Do they say, okay we're gonna we're just gonna like divide this the these these, these statutes into seventeen parts just on our own and just sever all sorts of parts of it. that's the part that i that I don't um I don't understand the the only- the only prediction that I can make with hundred percent certainty is that Kyle and I will write at least four to five law review articles about this <laughs> just because yeah. um I think what's clear is that there's not gonna be, you know I recommend people go read Tornillo because it's an interesting case and it's three pages long and it's extremely underargued. And the reason I, I point that out is is not just to criticize it, but to say it was a simpler and more naive age when the Supreme Court could dispose of issues like that in three conc- or seven or whatever conclusory argued pages. Um, I think what we're seeing now is whatever is going to be is going to be this like miserably fractured opinion that's going to leave a huge, huge amount on, unanswered. Which you know I think is a win for the states. Because at the end of the day, right, and we've what we have not talked about yet is the kind of honestly bad faith that went into a lot of these and uh, sloppy drafting. The states, you know, look, I'm, I'm sure there's some good faith behind them, but a lot of it was just wanting to smack the platforms around. And it's the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty that does that the most. And so, you know, even if some of the state provisions are struck down, anything less than a complete victory for the platforms is going to be a big loss, actually, in part because of business incentives and in part because of how aggressively NetChoice litigated this. And I really think that the platforms are headed in that sense for a a pretty brutal loss.
0: All right. As the person who – the only person I think in the United States who publicly predicted the Gonzalez-Tomna disposition in detail – um, I'm going to offer the following prediction here. You are all incorrect. Um, this is going to be resolved as an essentially total victory for the platforms. It will be written by the Chief Justice and it will include at least six and maybe seven justices, all but Thomas and Alito uh, the uh, maybe Gorsuch will be in dissent as well, but the reason. This will happen is precisely the reasons that you all say it's going to be a mess, which is that it is essentially unthinkable that you could let these laws go into effect. And actually, the only easy way to prevent some parts of them from going into effect is to hold that net choice is right. And the justices have a particularly playful relationship with Paul Clement, who is one of their most frequent public advocates, uh, and they will throw a lot of spaghetti at him and make him dodge it. But at the end of the day, they are going to... Uh, for the reasons that, that you guys all say it is impossible that the other side can win, the other side won't win. And, uh, that is, uh, what is going to happen. And you're all going to have to come to me and said, say, damn it, Ben, you nailed it again. On my, uh, prediction, which nobody will remember unless it turns out to be right. We are going to leave it there. Kyle Langvart, Quinta Jurassic. Alan Rosenstein, thank you all for joining us today. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer, this episode, is me. I did it myself, I filmed it, I recorded it. All the errors are mine. All the glory goes to God. Listen, folks, you have a job to do, and I want you to do it right now before you forget, before this bleeds into your head and you've just kind of kind of made a commitment to do it in general but haven't done it, go straight to lawfaremedia.org slash support and become a material supporter of lawfare because it is a federal crime to provide material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization, but it is a virtue to provide material support to Lawfare which is not designated, is not foreign, is not a terrorist organization, and is a service you use all the time. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, the long-suffering Jen Patya. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.